Well, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, we'll be reading through, the, uh, through chapter 7. So Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, through chapter 7. This morning we will be considering the story of Noah and his ark and the flood that God sends upon the world. So Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 9 through chapter 7. Well, please pay careful attention for this is God's holy and inspired word that's given to us this morning. Beginning in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark, and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. 
And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there is the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth a hundred and fifty days. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, what comes to mind when you think of this story, this narrative of Noah, Uh, Noah's Ark and this flood that God sends upon the earth. Imagine that most people probably think of a seemingly fantastical story that captures the imagination of children. In fact, of all the stories of scripture, I would wager a bet that this is one of the most well-known stories in all of the Bible. Now, beyond the fact that this is historically true, that it's interesting, that it captures our imagination, what's the point? What's the theological significance of this narrative? Why has God preserved this story in our Bibles for millennia? What's the point? Well, whenever we are seeking to discern the the point or the theological significance of an Old Testament passage, what should we do? Well, we should look to the New Testament. The New Testament interprets the Old. Sometimes we come across 
New Testament passages that explicitly interpret Old Testament passages. Other times, we don't have these kind of New Testament passages, and so we're left on our own to do the hard work of interpretation based on the general principles of the Word of God. Well, this narrative, this story, falls in the former category and not the latter. Meaning that we do come across several New Testament passages that explicitly interpret this narrative, this story of Noah and the ark and the flood. Arguably the two most important New Testament passages that interpret this story come from the Apostle Peter. So in 2 Peter 3, Peter tells us that the flood was a shadowy picture, echo, representation of the final judgment of fire that Christ would minister in his second coming. Thus, according to the Apostle Peter, this narrative has a lot to teach us about God's just judgment against sin. In 1 Peter 3, Peter tells us that this narrative about Noah and Noah's sons and Noah's daughters-in-law being preserved from the flood on an ark corresponds with baptism. Noah says that baptism, which now saves you, corresponds to this, to this narrative, to this story. And so according to Peter, this story, this narrative, has a lot to teach us about the meaning of new covenant baptism and of salvation, salvation through Christ. And so this narrative, this story, is given to us to enhance our understanding of God's judgment of new covenant baptism, and of salvation through Christ. So what's the point? What's the significance? Why has God preserved this story in our Bibles for millennia? Well, God wants to teach us that baptism corresponds or is a sign and seal of the promise that Jesus delivers us through God's judgment. Baptism corresponds or baptism is a sign and seal of the promise that Jesus delivers us through God's judgment. That's the main point of this narrative. Baptism corresponds to the promise that Jesus delivers us through God's judgment. That's the main point I want us to unpack this morning. To do that, we'll first consider this narrative of Noah, the ark, and the flood. Second, we'll consider the promise of Jesus' deliverance through God's judgment. And last of all, we'll consider how baptism corresponds to this promise. Well, you may remember that last week we considered the beginning of Genesis chapter 6. And in the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, we saw that the sons of God were marrying the daughters of man. The sons of God were marrying the daughters of man. I made the case that this is a reference to wicked kings and rulers and tyrants in the world that then was who were essentially creating harems for themselves. They were polygamous. They were following in the footsteps of their forefather Lamech. And on the heels of this great sin, in verse 5 of chapter 6, God gives us a description of human depravity. He says that every intention of the thoughts of the heart of man were only evil continually. 
Can't really state things stronger than that. That's a pretty bleak description of the state of mankind. Every intention of the thoughts of the heart of man were only evil continually. And thus, in verses 6 and 7, God announced his coming judgment. He is going to wipe out all living flesh because of the corruption of mankind. Well, this theme of human corruption continues in our passage today. And we see in verses 11 and 12, uh, this repetition. And notice specifically the repetition of this idea of the earth corrupting itself. So we read in verses 11 and 12, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Notice the repetition of the earth corrupting itself. Notice further the contrast here to what we read in Genesis 1 about the original creation mandate. God originally created man to be social creatures, to get married, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to love their neighbor and seek the good of their neighbor. But here we see that man is exemplifying antisocial behavior. Man is filled with violence. Man is at each other's throat. Furthermore, in Genesis 1.31, God looked upon his creation at the end of the sixth day, and what did he say? He judged it to be very good, exceedingly good. Now God looks upon his creation, and in an anthropomorphic sense, he is shocked by the corruption of mankind. And so, in verse 17 of Genesis 6, God yet again announces his coming judgment. But here he tells us that his judgment will be through the waters of a flood. In verse 17, God tells us in no uncertain terms that he is the one who is sending this judgment. This flood is not going to be a random happenstance. It's not going to be a coincidence. It's not going to be just a natural disaster that falls outside of the sovereign providence of our God. No, he himself is sending the flood. This is God's just judgment against the sin of mankind. Psalm 29.10, the psalmist says that the Lord sits enthroned above the, above the flood. This is the Lord's flood. He is sending the waters of the flood against the corruption of mankind. Well, this bleak description of mankind at this point in history serves as a, a dark backdrop, a contrast, a foil, as it were, to the righteousness of Noah. So notice how this passage begins. We learn about the character of Noah. Noah is described as being righteous, as being blameless, as having walked with God. Now the only other person in the Bible who is described as having walked with God is Enoch. The Enoch that we considered last week in chapter 5. And how did Enoch's life end? Well, he was rescued from death because he was immediately raptured up into heaven by God. And so this should at least cause us to think that maybe, maybe Noah will also be rescued from God's judgment. Well, we see that God tells righteous Noah that he is to build an ark. And he tells us... Um, 
the dimensions of this ark. And then he tells Noah that he and his family, his sons and his sons' wives, and two of all living flesh shall have a spot on this ark and thus be delivered from God's just judgment. Noah's family is saved from God's judgment through their connection to righteous Noah. We see that God works through families. This is a principle that we see continued throughout the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. When verse 18, in chapter 6, verse 18, God comes to Noah right before he tells him to build this ark. And he tells Noah that he is making a covenant with Noah. He's making a covenant with Noah. Now this covenant that God makes with Noah here in chapter 6 is different than the covenant that we will consider next week that God makes in chapter 8 and chapter 9. That covenant is made with all of creation. This covenant is only with Noah and by extension with Noah's family. And so this covenant is part of what is sometimes referred to as the covenant or the covenants of grace. Now, the covenant of grace began in Genesis 3.15. And every successive covenant after that original gospel promise seeks to unfold or unpack that promise of Genesis 3.15. And so, boys and girls, a few weeks ago, I described it like an essay that you may have to write for school. You write an essay for school, you have to state your main point, and then every successive paragraph seeks to unpack or explain that original main point. Well, that's what the covenant of grace is like. The main point of scripture is stated in Genesis 3.15, and thus every covenant thereafter seeks to add a little bit more revelation to that original gospel promise. And so what contribution is this covenant that we see being made here in Genesis 6 making to the covenant of grace? How is this covenant continuing to unfold or unpack the promise of Genesis 3.15. Well, this covenant is teaching us that the righteous seed of the woman will deliver the people of God from God's judgment. This covenant is teaching us that the righteous seed of the woman will deliver the people of God from God's judgment. Now, of course, that righteous seed of the woman is not Noah. Rather, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who will deliver us through God's judgments. And so now I'd like us to consider the promise, the promise of Jesus and his deliverance from God's judgment. As I mentioned, this passage describes Noah as being righteous, as being blameless, as having walked with God. However, Noah was a sinner. He had an imperfect righteousness. He had an imperfect blamelessness. He walked with God imperfectly. Noah was still a sinner saved by grace. And so Noah, in this sense, is a type, a shadow of Christ. Jesus is the more perfect Noah. Jesus was actually righteous and blameless. Jesus perfectly walked with his father, heart, soul, mind, and strength, head, heart, and hands. And so, just as Noah's family was saved through the waters of that flood because of their relationship with Noah, so too we will be saved from judgment through our relation, our connection to Christ. How are we related? How are we connected to Christ? Well, by faith. 
By faith, we are connected to Christ and thus receive the gift of salvation. Now, what are we saved from? What are we saved from? Are we saved from a natural disaster? Are we saved from a literal flood? Are we saved from the trials and sufferings of this life? No. We are saved from the wrath of God. That's what this narrative is teaching us. Through faith in Christ, we're saved from the wrath of God. The gospel is not about how you will be saved from the miseries of this life or how you will enjoy a life of prosperity in this age or how you have a right to more common grace blessings than your unbelieving neighbors. That's not what the gospel promises. The gospel promises that you will be saved from the eternal and everlasting wrath of God. That's the gospel. The gospel is preaching a vertical message. And so through Christ, we are delivered through the judgment of God. We are saved from the wrath of God. Now this point is further substantiated by the fact that Jesus in the Gospels refers to his death on the cross as a baptism. And when you come across that in Luke 10, you may scratch your head and wonder why in the world would Jesus refer to his death on the cross as a baptism? <clears throat> well, Jesus is wanting us to know that the flood was again a faint echo, mirage, representation, shadow of what he endured on the cross. On the cross, Jesus took the plunge into the raging waters of the wrath of God. Or to put it another way, final judgment, the final judgment of fire which will be administered on the last day broke into this age on Good Friday. Jesus suffered final judgment on your behalf. Jesus suffered the agony and torment of hell that your sins have earned. That's what Jesus endured on the cross. The cross isn't merely an example of self-sacrificial love that we are to imitate. You know, the cross is where Jesus took the plunge into the chaotic and raging waters of the wrath of God for us and for our salvation. And he did this so that on the last day, he can be your ark, preserving you through the just judgment that you will only look upon with your eyes. Jesus, through his flesh, is our ark, preserving us from the just judgment of God, which will be administered at the second coming of Christ. This is the gospel. Now let's do a thought experiment for a moment. Imagine that you're on your deathbed and you have a few wakeful, sane moments left and you're contemplating, contemplating the end of this physical life and eternity. You're contemplating beginning this new epoch in your existence. And that's a sobering moment. And in, in that moment, what, what would give you confidence? Would you find confidence in Christ and his life, his death, and resurrection? Would you find confidence in the fact that your faith has persevered and endured to the end? Would you find confidence in the fact that you trusted God during the difficult times in life? Would you find confidence in the fact that through the Spirit you produced um, good fruits, sanctified good works, that your sanctification had an upward trajectory during your life? If your answer is all of the above, then you may be in danger 
of creating or making an alternative ark to the ark of Christ. And any alternative ark to the ark of Christ will sink on that last day. Our only confidence, our only hope in passing God's just judgment is in Christ. Not in ourselves, not in the quality of our faith, not in the degree to which we've been sanctified or the zeal that we have for the Lord, but it's only in Christ. Part of our sinful nature, or part of the propensity of our sinful nature, is to seek to create arcs of our own righteousness and to begin to trust in those arcs. And if we're trusting the ark of our own righteousness, we will sink. We will be consumed on the last day. It's easy for us as, as uh, you know, Protestant Christians to lambast the Roman Catholic Church on this point and say, you know, they believe in justification through intrinsic righteousness. They believe that we're saved through our faith and our good works. However, there are many Protestant evangelical churches that teach, sometimes in subtle ways and sometimes in not-so-subtle ways, that our final destiny is secured in part through Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, but our final destiny is also secured in part through the quality of our faith, through the degree in which we've been sanctified, to the vitality and purity of our affections and zeal and religious experiences within the Christian life. And thus, when you have the entire package deal, then you will be fully justified. Then you will pass through God's just judgment on the last day. Well, that, beloved, is merely Roman Catholic teaching wrapped up in Protestant garb. If you, on Judgment Day, point to the quality of your faith, point to your sanctified good works or the affections and zeal that you have for the Lord, God's going to respond to you and say that your faith is not strong enough. Your good works are not holy enough. Your affections are not pure enough. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. The only right answer on judgment day is that I have been engrafted into Christ who is my deliverance and ark. That's the only right answer. Every other answer will be consumed by fire. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that we are to embrace. That we are saved not through the quality of our faith, not through the vitality of our experiences, but through the ark of Christ. And this is exactly what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism. As the Catechism is expositing the Apostles' Creed, it says, what comfort is it to you that Christ shall come to judge the living and the dead? What does it say? The answer is that I, with an uplifted head, Look to the very one who offered himself for me to the judgment of God. What gives us confidence and hope as we think about death and the return of Christ is not us, not our faith, not our experiences, not our works, but the fact that Christ was baptized on our behalf. That's the good news of the gospel that we are called to embrace. Christ is our deliverance. Christ is our ark. As I mentioned before, in, in 1 Peter 3, Peter reminds us that baptism, new covenant baptism, new covenant baptisms that we, that we experience in the life of our own church, new covenant baptism corresponds to this promise, this promise that Jesus is our ark, that he delivers us from the judgment and wrath of God. 
Now, the reason why God gave us baptism, a physical sign and seal, was to assure us. You may wonder, how, how can we really know that we are connected to Christ, that we're united to him? How can we really know, when you're on your deathbed and you're thinking about eternity, how can you really know that you will pass through God's judgment? How can you really know that you have been justified, declared righteous, even though you feel very sinful? Well, look to your baptism. Your baptism is meant to be a physical sign and seal assuring you that God's gospel promise is for you. It's not just for people out there, it's for you in particular. That's how baptism functions as a means of assurance. So boys and girls, for those of you who've been baptized, your baptism is not something to trust in. If you trust in your baptism, your baptism is just then another alternative ark that will be consumed on the last day. Rather, you should think of your baptism as a physical invitation to climb aboard the ark of Christ. Now, you still have to respond to that invitation, actually climb aboard, and the way in which you climb aboard is by professing your faith. But your baptism is an assurance that the gospel promise is for you. It's for you to believe in your heart and profess with your mouths. Just as the, the preaching of the gospel is an audible invitation to climb aboard the ark of Christ, Baptism is a physical invitation to climb aboard the Ark of Christ, both of which need to be responded to by faith. Faith that we believe in our hearts and profess with our mouths. Well, baptism is a double-edged sword. Baptism also is a sign and seal of your future judgment if you are trusting in your own righteousness. If you, are, if you turn away from Christ, your baptism is assurance not of your salvation, but of your future destruction. It's a sign and seal of how your ark of your own righteousness will sink on the last day. It's a double-edged sword. But notice how baptism is not a, a sign and seal of your experience, of your affections, of your personal faith. It's all about God's action towards you, either his justification of you or his future judgment of you. It's a sign and seal of God's mercy or his justice, depending on, on whether or not you profess faith. Baptism is God's playing field, his action towards you. And so what is this narrative all about? What's the significance of it? Why has God preserved this story in our Bibles for millennia? Well, to teach us that baptism corresponds. Baptism is, is a sign and seal of the promise that Jesus delivers us from the judgment of God. And, you know, we talk a lot about being a law gospel church or we preach um, um, according to this, this harmonic, this principle of, of, of law gospel. What that means is that you'll never hear me, you'll never hear one of your elders, you'll never hear a visiting pastor tell you to trust in yourself, trust in the quality of your faith, trust in your experiences, your affections, or even the degree in which you've been sanctified. But you will constantly hear your leaders urge you to flee to Christ, who is your ark. Now, in a few moments, we will be partaking of the Lord's Supper. And what this reminds us is that baptism isn't the only sacrament that's relevant to this narrative. In the Lord's Supper, we will be partaking of broken bread and poured out wine. And as we partake of these common, ordinary, earthly elements, 
we are reminded that we are to draw the, the eyes of our heart away from ourselves to the humanity of Christ. It's the humanity of Christ who is our ark, preserving us from God's just judgment and wrath towards sin. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story, this well-known story, but we thank you for its significance, the way in which it builds up our faith in your son, Jesus Christ, and the free salvation that he offers to us. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would cause us to not trust in our righteousness, in our good works, in the vitality of our affections, but that we would trust in Christ, in his righteousness, in his death, in his uh, intercession on our behalf. Oh Lord, we pray that as we do this, you would actually free us up to be able to live a life of good works as we are not focusing upon ourselves, but we're focusing upon your son and your glory. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to all of you who desire to partake of Holy Communion, you must consider how the Apostle Paul calls us to examine ourselves before we eat of the bread and drink of the wine. For as the benefit of this holy and sacred meal is great for those who partake of it by faith, the danger of it is also great if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner. For then you'll be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ, and you'll be eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. But if you judge yourselves truly, then you also will not be judged, as the Apostle Paul says. So if you're visiting with us this morning and you have not been baptized in the name of the triune God, if you've not professed faith before elders in another Christian Protestant church and are not presently seeking to live a godly life as a member of Christ's body here on earth, we would admonish you to abstain and speak to myself or one of our elders after the service. But if you do profess true faith in Jesus Christ and are a part of his body here on earth, you are invited to draw near to this table and take this holy sacrament for your comfort. Hear now a comforting words our Savior speaks to all those who turn to him by faith. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom we are the foremost. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, that is to say the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for all our sins. So congregation of Christ, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let's pray.